0: In the Philippines, during World War II, there was a Japanese prison camp. It was called Cabana Tuan, and in the camp there were 500 Allied prisoners of war being held there. Many of these men were malnourished, some were starving, they were suffering from disease. There seemed to be very little hope of survival for these men, but all the while, a battalion of U.S. Army Rangers was secretly planning a rescue attempt in hopes of liberating the POWs. This mission, as we might imagine, it was extremely risky because of the sheer number of Japanese troops that surrounded the camp and the road that led to it. See, for these rangers to sneak in undetected, to pull off the rescue, and then lead these very weak malnourished POWs on a 30 mile march back to safety, the chances of success were were razor thin. Well, the man charged with leading this effort was Lieutenant Colonel Henry Mucci. And one of the things Colonel Mucci made clear as the Rangers volunteered for this operation, you cannot take part in this unless you are a man of prayer. The colonel reasoned that the odds were so heavily stacked against them that only by God's divine hand Could they be successful? And even though this rule violated the army's policies on inclusion, no one raised an objection, whether Catholic or Protestant or agnostic. No one argued against Colonel Mucci because everybody felt the weight of this mission. If the Lord is not with us, no one is coming back alive. Now, as we turn to Exodus 33 this morning, This very desperate sense of need for God's presence and his power is felt in Israel and it's really come full circle for the people of Israel. If we recall, when Israel was under the evil rule of Pharaoh, they cried out to God and God answered them. He came down and rescued them. But then we saw last week how the people completely turned from their devotion to the Lord. And they fashioned an idol to worship instead. And the outcome of that golden calf episode was the very sharp and very painful judgment of God. So the people are now on shaky ground. They have grossly violated the covenant that the Lord made with them. And it's perhaps uncertain as to how they're going to proceed from here. How do you even move forward after Uh, such a gross violation, such a massive sin and rebellion? Well, this is the question that chapter 33 begins to answer. How will the people move forward? How will God proceed with them? And here's the overarching point I want us to consider as we enter into this scripture today. Y'all, there is nothing more valuable, nothing, than the presence of God. Nothing the Lord gives to us can compare with the Lord being with us. And we will see this all throughout chapter 33 of Exodus. So let's begin together in verse one. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your descendants, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning, and none of them put on his ornaments. Now, recap here what the Lord is saying to Moses. Go on to the promised land, the land which I swore to give you. I will send an angel ahead of you to ensure that you take possession of it and enjoy its blessings. But I will not come down and dwell among you because you are obstinate in your sins. You are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you along the way. Now, an enormous turn has been made here from what we've seen in previous chapters. If if we recall back in chapters 25, 26, around there, God, God commissioned the building of a tabernacle, a large tent right in the middle of the camp, which would serve as God's dwelling place among his people. But now, In light of their idolatry, the Lord threatens to change course. He will keep his promise in giving them the land, but he will not draw near to them and dwell among them as previously planned. Why not? Because if they persist in their sins, God's righteous judgment will overtake them. Now, when we read that at first glance, that, that may seem like, you know, a, a, a slight against God's own character. He might destroy them as if God were, you know, capricious uh, in his anger, impulsive in his judgment. But no, we, we need to recognize that there's actually great mercy in God's words right here. God's heart is to not destroy them. And so instead, he plans to remove from them his holy presence. That's protective. That's to preserve them, because in their sin, his holiness, it cannot tolerate. He can't tolerate this this obstinance. And therefore, he plans to, in a sense, withdraw. But this, this sets up a pivotal moment right here, because think about what the Lord is saying. On one hand, he's ensuring that Israel is going to receive the promised land. Their very own place to call home, flowing with milk and honey, a land of great blessing. I mean, isn't that what it's all about? Isn't that what the people wanted? But see again in verse 4. When the people heard this sad word, this bad news, they went into mourning. And none of them put on his ornaments. When Israel heard that God would not dwell among them, they grieved and they took off their jewelry, which was a sign of poverty. See, the promise of the land was of little value to them without the presence of the Lord. And if you look down in verse 12, we see why. The promise of the land, sweet as that was, wonderful as it sounded to their ears, It lacked the same sense of value, of beauty, of glory, of worth, if the presence of the Lord was not with them. And Moses kind of illuminates this for us in his own words, in his own conversation with the Lord. Moses is going to plead with God for the one thing Israel really needs most of all, and it's not the land. It's not any physical, tangible thing. Look down at verse 12. At this conversation now between Moses and God, Moses said to the Lord in verse 12, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I might find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And the Lord said, my presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. But then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? Now, there are two things we see in Moses right here that that I hope would encourage us. Two things that we ought to imitate ourselves in how we relate to the Lord. The first thing we see is his obvious confidence. I mean, wow, Moses is not afraid to tell the Lord exactly what's on his heart. Moses also is very bold in affirming back to God the very promises that God has made to him and to his people. And and we may read this kind of boldness, and it might make us uncomfortable because we might think of Moses here as being kind of presumptuous. I mean, if we think about this, a lot of us have this perspective that God is very great, and by contrast, I am very small. God is perfect, of course, and I'm a sinner. And in that case, who am I to approach the Lord? And if I approach God at all, it's kind of, you know, I kind of tiptoe in to his presence, always keeping a healthy distance, only speaking when first spoken to, things like that. How could Moses be any different? Well, think about this. Moses in in Exodus 33 is not being brash. He's not being presumptuous. He's simply living in the relationship that God initiated. I mean, recall back in the early chapters of Exodus, it was God who initiated relationship with Moses at the burning bush. Moses didn't find God, God came for him. It was God who invited Moses into the divine presence and his divine counsel. It's God right here who says to Moses, I have known you by name. And so for Moses to approach God the way he does, he's simply uh, walking out this divine privilege that he's been given. The Lord knows him by name. And so the relationship here makes perfect sense. And I want to encourage us in this. But when the Lord says, I've known you by name, that ought to resonate with us too. That ought to sound familiar to everyone who is in Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus, then we recognize these very words that come to us from John chapter 10. In John 10, Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And Jesus says this in that same chapter. He says, I know my sheep and I call them by name. He calls us by name. And so this is maybe a helpful corrective. For any of us who read what Moses says, and we think, oh my goodness, I would never approach God like that. I would never have that kind of boldness, that kind of confidence in the presence of the Lord. But think about this, in in the same way, in much the same way that Moses experienced for himself, the Lord has opened up a door for us. The Lord has made the way for us to come to him as his children. We come as children to a heavenly father because God has granted us all grace through the sending of his own son. We have this very special privileged relationship. Jesus knows us by name. He's called us to actual intimacy and freedom that we might draw near to the Lord. We don't tiptoe into his presence. We don't stand in the corner. We come right in. There's a place in Hebrews chapter four that instructs us in this way, that in light of who Christ is to us, here's the command. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What an amazing, that's a command. Draw near to God with confidence because his throne is a throne of grace. We're not being presumptuous. This is the relationship he's given us. And so y'all, I want to call us to something today. I know that there are some of us perhaps that we, we don't ever really pray. I mean, really pray. Because we have this perspective that says, I'm not important. My problems are small and silly. God has more important things to do than to deal with me and my problems. A lot of us carry that, that attitude, that mentality around. And in that case, can I just lovingly say to you, That is hogwash. You matter more than that. Listen, by faith in Jesus Christ, you are God's beloved child. He loves for you to come to him, to speak with him, to ask of him. You are never, ever a bother. That's not how God thinks of you. We ought to have confidence in our approach to the Lord because, listen, your confidence is not based on you and your sense of importance or worthiness. Your confidence is based on him. God loves you and sent his son for you. And if that's true, why would we ever think that God would be indifferent toward us or too busy for us? No, if he loves us that much, then we ought to take on the same type of confidence that we see in Moses. This ought to be the rule for us, not the exception. And so we see in Moses something we ought to take on for ourselves. It's great confidence in approaching God. But the second thing we see in Moses that I hope we will take to heart is that in Moses, there's a great sense of longing and desperation for God. Uh, Look again at verse 15. Then Moses said to the Lord, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? In other words, the promise of the land is of no value apart from the presence of the Lord. What good is the gift without the giver? Moses is saying that the people, we have no identity, no distinction, unless the Lord dwells among us. And so he communicates this to God as a refusal. We will not go... Without you, Lord, unless you lead us, unless you dwell with us, don't lead us up at all. Now, I read that as a terrific challenge for me. And and I would ask this question of my own heart. Maybe you can ask it of yours. Do I really long for and desire God's presence like this? Is this my attitude? concerning the presence and intimacy and nearness of God. Now, keep in mind, of course, that God has offered to fulfill every other promise. He's going to send an angel ahead of Israel to ensure that they take possession of this promised land. Y'all, that means that for once, for the first time in this case, no one has ever known freedom like this. They've been in Egypt for over 400 years. They're finally going to have security and abundance and freedom. They're going to harvest their own crops and build and live in their very own homes. This is a dream scenario for a people who only a few months ago were slaves to Egypt. Shouldn't that be enough for Moses and the people to be satisfied? But no, they don't want the gift from God's hand Without the blessing of God's face. And this is what, you know, we've been reading this word presence over and over in this chapter. The word presence, as it's written in Hebrew, it it literally means God's face. His presence is His face, which communicates personal relationship, nearness, closeness. Here in the same chapter, we're told that when God and Moses met, they often spoke face-to-face as a man speaks with his friend. And so for us, we recognize, I hope, to have God's face means something very precious to Israel. And also, I hope, to us, that to have the face of God means we have intimacy with God, nearness, we have grace and comfort, acceptance and access, communion, identity, hope, Promise, all of it comes inclusive with God's face, His presence. And this is what the Lord means when He says to Moses, I have known you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Moses has the face of God, and that's what He longs for, for Himself and for the people. And, y'all, I just wonder for me, for you do we value God's presence as deeply as Moses does? Or maybe we could ask it like this. Do we value God's hand of blessing more than we value his face? Would I be content with a life full of good gifts, family, career, money, House, friends, hobbies, even church. All good things. Would that would that satisfy me? If I never experienced the depth of God's love and his nearness and his presence, would I be satisfied with the good things God might give me if I never really communed with God and really knew him intimately? See, I... I'll be the first to admit that those things, those gifts sound pretty great all on their own terms. Wouldn't that make for a wonderful life? But this brings us back to Moses' plea. Lord, what good is the gift apart from the giver? What good is a life full of great you know, commodities if I don't know and commune and walk with God, the giver of those good things. See, when the apostle Paul reflects on this, this is in Philippians chapter three, Paul takes inventory of his own life and there were a great many things that gave Paul his sense of identity, success, achievement, things that that he really hung his hat on, but then he came to know Jesus. And everything got flipped upside down for Paul. And he comes to a startling conclusion as he reflects on the good things that used to define him. Listen to what he says now. This is Philippians chapter three, verse seven. Paul says, whatever things were gain to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. What an amazing scripture. Nothing else, Paul says, nothing else, can compare to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Saint Augustine said for Christ to be valued at all, he must be valued above all. And this is for us where kind of the rubber meets the road. Am I satisfied with good things, good experiences, good feelings? Or am I satisfied in knowing the Lord, in seeing him for who he really is and treasuring him as the most supreme and wonderful gift in all the universe? And see, this is this is helpful maybe for us to consider. When we look to Jesus as our greatest treasure, we're not doing anything to make him valuable. Jesus is already the most valuable thing in existence. What we do, we simply recognize this. We recognize, as Paul does, the surpassing value of Jesus. And we respond with a deep longing to know him, to gain him, in Paul's words, to be found in him. It is possible For us to settle for the things that God might give us and never really long for and desire God Himself. And so, if we think back to Exodus now, this is the relationship that Israel broke with the golden calf. They tried to replace the genuine presence of God with a cheap substitute. But now the relationship is being restored. What was broken is being renewed because Moses has come to intercede for the people. And if we see the Lord's response in verse 17, it's really astounding. The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight and I have known you by name. The Lord is giving Moses and the people this most essential thing that they're asking and and longing for. And y'all, think about this. When your sincere desire is to know God, to seek his face, to delight in him above all things, the Lord will always, always honor That desire, that request, God will never stiff arm you. God will never turn his back on you. If your heart's desire is to really know him and walk with him like this. There's a pastor named John Piper. He coined a phrase on this and he says it like this. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him and that's it we're satisfied in him over and above any good thing we might receive from his hand of blessing and so the question is okay how do i grow in this i want to be like this i want to be more like moses i want my greatest desire my greatest ambition and affection to be the lord himself and his divine presence but how do we get there because this you know this may seem like a moving target It's very intangible, maybe, for us. How do we grow in this, this desire and this experience? Well, once again, let's let Moses be our guide here. We just saw in verse 17, God gives assurance. He will indeed restore his presence. He will make his dwelling among the people. Moses gets what he asks for. That should be the end of the chapter, right? Right? But no, now look at the very next verse, verse 18. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. Now, what is he asking for here? Moses is saying, Lord, I want to know you entirely, all the way to the bottom. I want to see you fully. I want to take in all of the weight of your divine glory. Show it to me. Let me all the way in to your presence, your power, your goodness. And here's God's response to that. Verse 19, and the Lord said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But God said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Now, this is going to bleed into next week's sermon from chapter 34, but just think about how amazing all of this is. See, on one hand, the Lord says to Moses, You can't see my face. You cannot take in all my glory, not the fullness of it, because no man can see me and live. But at the same time, The Lord is not saying no. He's not stiff-arming Moses. No, he's making a provision for him. He's going to answer in the affirmative. I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim my name before you. I will show you the power of my grace and my mercy. We'll see the outcome of this next week, but, but for today, I just, I want us to make some application here. What is Moses asking for? Show me your glory. Moses was never content with a casual arms length relationship with God. He simply wouldn't settle for that. He longed to know the Lord, to live in his presence. He longed to see God for who he really is. He wanted more and more and more of his heavenly father. And the Lord delighted in Moses and he answered his prayer. And I'll say this. It really is that simple for us. I've heard another pastor say this and it's really convicting to me. I think he's right. We will have as much of God as we want. You can get as much of God as you want because the Lord will not withhold himself from us. We are the ones who withhold from him. And so we'll get as much of the Lord, of his presence, of his grace as we desire. And this this is accords with with what the scripture says in James chapter 4. Here's the promise. Very simple. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's it. And see, if this is your heart's desire to draw near to him, to know him, to see and and delight in his goodness, to walk with him in a meaningful personal relationship, oh my goodness, if that's your desire, the Lord will never refuse you. In fact, he's done us even one better. There is a huge reference point from what we're reading in Exodus 33, that we see in the gospel, specifically in John chapter one, and the reference is to Jesus. And so as we close, I want us to see this. This is so wonderful. Think about what we've just read. Moses's desire to see God's glory. God says, you cannot see my face, not my full glory. Now look at John chapter one, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time, John says, but the only begotten God, that's Jesus, who is in the bosom of the father, he has explained him. Jesus has made God known. Jesus Christ came to reveal God to the world in the most unique and profound way, something that otherwise could never be possible, Jesus came to show us, the Father, how? Face to face, eye to eye. That's why in Colossians we're told that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It's why Jesus told his disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. We have seen his glory. We have come into contact with the divine in a way that otherwise would seem impossible for us. You know, if, if, if we ever wonder, does God really want to be known? Does God really want this kind of intimacy? Jesus is the proof, the once and for all proof that God does want to be known truly and intimately. He does truly know us and call us by name. God is never hiding from us. No, Jesus came to seek us out. Jesus, therefore, is our way to the Father. We may draw near to God. How? Through Christ, by faith in him. All of this is meant to connect for us. That God is not up a mountain somewhere and his glory always obscured from us. No, Jesus has come down to us and has made the Lord known to us in a way that only God in his great love and mercy could do. And so I just, I I close, I hope, this, this morning with a wonderful insight for us that what Moses prayed for, show me your glory. I want to see God's glory and goodness and God's gracious presence. What Moses prayed for, we, in a very real and even greater sense, we, may receive and enjoy ourselves in God's full expression of glory and grace and goodness. The free gift of God granted to us in the sending of his son who died for us and who rose again. We all right now by faith, by faith, may experience the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. And y'all know what that means in this case? The gift is the giver. The giver is the gift. Really and truly the greatest thing God could ever give you is the gift of himself. And this is what he's done in the sending of of his only begotten son. This is how we have confidence in drawing near to him because Jesus' throne is a throne of grace. This is where all of our deepest longings and desires and desperation for God, this is where it's met, is in the person of Jesus Christ. God can be known and he delights to know you by name. This is the free gift granted to us better than any tangible thing we could ever hold in our hand. God has given us the very gift of himself and we receive him full face in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so, I, I pray this morning, we are brought uh, to terms with our own hearts, maybe it's true for us that we are perfectly content with good things, good gifts. And we give maybe very little consideration to the giver and to the surpassing value of knowing you, of seeing your glory, of communing with you. And, Father, if that's true of us, if we have delighted more in your hand than in your face, then I pray, Lord, for me, I pray for us that we would, uh, that you would correct us, Father. Show us that the ultimate glory and grace and blessing and joy is not uh, in your hand, as it were. But it's in you, it's in your face, it's your heart, it's your presence. If we don't have your presence, then we really have nothing. And Lord, you've granted this to us by quite literally coming into the world. You brought your very presence to us in Jesus Christ. And he is our good shepherd. He knows us by name. And we hear his voice and we follow him. Father, help us to see that you could give us nothing at all in this world better than the gift of you, the gift of yourself. And Father, turn our eyes in that case upon Jesus that we might look full in his wonderful face and everything else in this world would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We ask that it would be so in his wonderful, precious, intimate, glorious name. Amen.